Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 14. Matthew, Matthew 14, 34 through 36. How many of you are happy to be back in the book of Matthew this morning? Amen. Matthew 14, 34 through 36. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were cured. This is one of those texts that you kind of just read over to get to the next interesting section, isn't it? All around this section have been these memorable, well-known passages of Scripture. In Matthew 13, uh, 14, 13 through 21, we have the Jesus feeding the 5,000. 22 through 33, we just came out of Jesus walking on the water and uh, that the calming of the storm that took place after that. So this is right on the heels of those two very memorable texts. And then in 15, four, uh, 14, 1 through 14, I can't speak this morning. See, if I take three weeks off, I can't speak anymore. I can't do that. In 15, 1 through 14, Jesus absolutely owns the Pharisees as he again confrontationally calls out their blatant hypocrisy. I've seen this section tagged onto the end of the walking on the water narrative. And I've seen it included in commentaries with little comment tagged onto the upcoming confrontation with the Pharisees in chapter 15. But I think this less well-known bridge section between narratives contains a lot of truths worth chewing on. And it all centers around ministry. Do you ever get tired you ever, get, you ever tempted to quit or, or at least to take your foot off the gas a little bit? Sometimes we think we really need a sabbatical. A little R&R, rest and relaxation. That's what we think we need. But we don't see much of that in the ministry of our Lord. This morning we're going to look at a different R&R in this text and then two more R's. We're going to see that it's not rest and relaxation, but hard work, perseverance, and loving service that leads for the good of others, that leads to a life of fulfillment, that leads to the good life. And for our first point, instead of rest, we don't, we don't see rest. We see a resumption of ministry. Look at 34 through 35. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all the surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. It's important that we consider this text in the immediate context, as always. And in the greater context of Matthew's gospel, in order to allow it to hit us like it should. Humanly speaking, Jesus had every reason in the world not to only want to break, but to want to quit. Just looking back over the events of chapter 14, we know that Jesus and the disciples, they were tired. 
Remember the events that led to the feeding of the 5,000? This is all in immediate succession. So the events leading to the feeding of the 5,000, Matthew 14, 13 through 15, look back. Jesus heard about John and he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. So remember, Matthew 14, verse 13, Jesus is broken over the news of John the Baptist's murder. He was clearly spiritually and emotionally and physically drained and he wanted to get away. He wanted to grieve, pray and clear his head. But what happened? When the people heard this, 14.13, they followed him on foot from the cities and when he went ashore he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them. And he healed their sick. Exhausted and broken though he was, his compassion compelled him to service. And when I say service, I mean all day long service. An already exhausted Jesus serves all day long. Look at verse 15. When it was evening, so he lands there, he's wanting to rest, he's tired, he sees all these people, he has compassion, he heals people all day long. And when it's evening... The disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and the hour is already late. Send the crowds away so that they might go into the villages and buy food for themselves. They're wanting a break too. They're broken. They're tired. They're exhausted. And they're not the Son of God. But no. Jesus spent the time. He organized a miraculous dinner in which thousands upon thousands of people were fed. Can you imagine how relieved the disciples were when all that work was over? I can't. Look at 14 through 22, uh, 14, 22 through 25. Immediately after all this is done, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And they're like, I, I bet they were so happy to be getting on that boat to get away from all those needy people who needed to be served, don't you? These exhausted disciples finally get to get on the boat and get away from these needy people. But God isn't finished teaching them. Look at verse 23. When he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So Jesus sent them in a boat immediately after the crowds ate, and the disciples had gathered the fragments. So from supper, just after... From, from just after supper until the fourth watch, that's what it says here, in, in, right? The fourth watch, which is somewhere around 3 to 6 a.m. That's the fourth watch. So somewhere in that window, these already exhausted disciples had been fighting the storm to get to the other side. And of course, we know the rest of the story. Peter walks in the water for a bit, sinks. Jesus saves Peter from the water. And then they get on the boat and the wind immediately stops just like that. And that's where we left things off in our last sermon in Matthew. They were exhausted prior to the feeding of the 5,000. They then fought a storm all night long with no rest. And they're undoubtedly even more exhausted now, right? Because that's kind of how tiredness works. You're already tired and then you have to do something arduous like battle a storm on a boat for hours. You're more tired. So in verse 34, we see that when they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. Why would the disciples be wanting to land there? That's where they were headed. Well, when I read the description of Gennesaret in the commentaries, I felt like I was reading from TripAdvisory.com. 
Let me read it to you. A small but very beautiful plain located between Capernaum and Magdala. A lush and extremely fertile area that produced a wide variety of crops. The fields and the vineyards were irrigated from no less than four large springs. This is right out of the commentary. TripAdvisor or John MacArthur, which one? You can't, you know. Enabling the farmers to produce three crops a year. And because the soil was so rich... It was all devoted to farming, and the area contained no villages and no towns. There ain't nobody around. They're trying to go to an Airbnb. It was therefore a quiet, peaceful region inhabited by many kinds of birds, offering a good place for retreat and rest. Straight out of the commentary. Jesus probably intended, this is MacArthur, Jesus probably intended to spend some time there alone with his disciples, but again, his plans were interrupted. Because when the men of that place recognized him, they sent into all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. Now from just reading Matthew's account alone, you might argue that they might have spent some time rejuvenating and resting up before anyone in Gennesaret recognized Jesus. But Mark eliminates that possibility. Let me read to you from Mark's account of this same event. And we know it's the same event because it's right after the walking on the water and the calming the storm and they immediately... So it's the same exact event. Mark 6, 53-56. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. And they ran about the whole country and began to carry here and there on the pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countrysides, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. Didn't matter how tired Jesus was. When he saw needs, he filled them. When he saw needs, I'm not saying we have to be going around trying to find needs all the time, every waking moment, we can never try to rest. But when we are tired and we see a need, we should still be a people of compassion. That's the point. And he led his disciples to be that kind of people too. Christ follower, know this, wherever you go, you're going to be serving. There will be hurting people and you are the bomb of Gilead for those hurting people. The Holy Spirit working within you is the antidote for what ails the whole fallen world. And we who are bought by the blood of Christ will find ourselves seeing needs and being compelled to fill them. You feel that tug? Don't ignore it. But not only did Jesus push through being tired, He was tired, but also think of the rejection that Jesus had faced. Rejection will make you want to quit faster than tired will. We backed up a bit to see why Jesus would have been tired. But let's back up even more to see how he was rejected. Look all the way back to Matthew 8, 34. We're just going to walk through this quickly. In Matthew 8, 34, Jesus cast demons out of legion. And the whole city came out and implored him to leave the region. That's how they responded to this miracle that he did of getting rid of the demons. Look at at 9.3. He healed the paralytic saying, Your your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said, This fellow blasphemes. Look at 9.11. Jesus was calling Matthew's tax collector friends to repentance. And the Pharisees said, Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? Pick, 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 pick. 
You see it? Look at 9.14. In the midst of all the good he's doing, even the disciples of John the Baptist challenge him about what he is not doing that, he, that they think he should be doing. They say, 9.14, Why do we, the Pharisees, fast, but your disciples don't fast? In 12.2, when the disciples pluck the heads of grain on the Sabbath, they say, look, your disciples do what's not lawful on the Sabbath. In 12.10, prior to the healing of the man with the withered hand, they say, it's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath, is it? So that they might accuse him. After healing the man with a withered hand in 12.14, the Pharisees went out and conspired together as how they might destroy him. In 12.22-24, after healing a demon-possessed blind mute, all the crowds were amazed and saying, this man can't be the son of David, is it? Actually, they're saying this isn't. Surely this weak little man that just did this miracle isn't the Messiah. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, no, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And even those in his own town in Matthew 1357, they took offense at him. And Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own household. Rejection, 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 rejection. The perfect job for the unproductive unproductive man, you don't know what it is? The perfect job for the unproductive man is a critic. The critic is often the man who has so much time on his hand because he's employed in doing so little actual good that he has nothing better to do than to sit around and fester over how the good that other men are doing is not good enough to meet their standards even though they aren't doing anything. Hear me, productive men. Plug your ears and do the next good thing. Plug your ears and do the next good thing. Pray for these poor, pitiful souls, but by no means should you ever for a minute allow them to tempt you to quit. Jesus didn't. That's the example of our Lord. Let's follow Him and do the next good thing. Resumption of ministry. Just pick it up and go forward. And when you persevere in ministry this way, through the tired and through the criticisms and the rejection, it'll lead to a reputation of ministry. That's our next R. Not rest and relaxation, but a resumption of ministry and then a reputation of ministry. Look at verse 35. When the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all the surrounding district. Before we get the wrong idea that you're going to be loved, you're going to be liked so much, well, a a reputation of ministry doesn't mean that you're loved by everyone. We've already seen the rejection that Jesus has experienced, right? The rejection only continues to escalate. And if you remember this whole story, this whole Jesus thing, it ends with him getting crucified, right? So, you know, he has a reputation of ministry and everybody wants a peace, but they don't love him all the time. We've also seen that Jesus warns his followers to accept the same sort of treatment. Remember that he said that being insulted is a sign of God's blessing, didn't he? Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Jesus said to even expect to be called a devil. Remember they said he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul. He tells his disciples in Matthew 10, 24-25 that a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple to become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they've called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? But despite the hatred, Jesus did have a reputation of ministry. They knew he could help and they knew he would help. 
They knew that he was a man of spiritual power and he was a man of compassion and he was a man of action. We must be like that. People, people know, hey, if I have a need, Scott, go forth. He'll hear me. He'll have compassion. He'll have words for me that will encourage me, that will guide me in the right direction. If he can help me, he will help me. Tommy Grissom, Cody maybe all of us, guys, they should, they should say, hey, this person will care about my lot, care about what I'm going through. And they not only can help, but they will help. We'll have a reputation of ministry. It means being that, that we will have a recognized value to others. Being around you will be of benefit to others. Jesus was, and those who are conformed to the image of Jesus will be a benefit to those around them as well. Every Christian should seek to be that kind of person. First of all, from the wisdom that we have. We should be so knowledgeable in the Word and filled with the Spirit of God that when people have a question, they want to come to us for counsel. If you're not in the Word, you won't be that kind of person. If you're not in prayer, you won't be that kind of person. We must be that kind of person. We should be ready, willing, and able to help. We should be like Suzugos when you had uh, Uodea and Sintuke in the book of Philippians and they're kind of in, having a quarrel and Paul says, Suzugos, you go and you help those women. He had a reputation. Suzugos will know how to help. This true companion will know how to help. And he sent them to him to be able to build a, be, be that help. Even when Paul was in prison, there was a steady stream of people who wanted to hear him give the evidence that Jesus was the Christ, wasn't there? In Acts 28-23, when they set a day for Paul, they came to him in his lodging, his lodging in large numbers and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God, trying to persuade them concerning Jesus out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning until evening. But not only will we have a reputation of wisdom, but like our Lord, we'll have that reputation of compassion that I've already mentioned. We know John 3.16, don't we? What about 1 John 3.17? Whoever has this world's goods, and he sees his brother in need, and he shuts up his heart of compassion toward him. Rhetorical question, how does the love of God dwell in him? That's not who we are as Christians. We have compassion when we see hurting. We care about others, don't we? That's who we are as Christians. If we have the ability to truly help someone, it should be difficult for us to say no. I'm not saying that there's never a time to say no, but there should be compassion. Saying, I, I might not be able to help the, the way they want me to, but I want to help in some way. It should be an ache in us when we see hurting. To want to alleviate that hurting, to alleviate that suffering. And I'm talking about even down to that homeless guy that's got his hand out wanting you to hand him some money. You shouldn't say, oh, that scum of the earth. We should think, I might not be able to hand him money. But man, I wish I could help. I want to be a help. I want to fix. I hurt for him. I'm not disgusted by him. I hurt for this image bearer of God. We lose that compassion and we're losing who we are in Christ. God forbid we ever lose that. We want we we have been blessed in Christ in order that we might be a blessing to others. Ephesians 4:28 it says let him who stole steal no more, but rather we must labor. Used to, before we were in Christ, we didn't care to hurt others for our own benefit. But now when we're in Christ, we're different. We labor, but not only that, we perform with our own hands what is good. Why? So that we will have something to share with those that are in need. It's not about just us anymore because we're a people of compassion. 
And we want to use our means to bless others. We have that sort of reputation. And when we have that sort of reputation, people will come to us. And they'll be referred to us that they might receive help. Now, I'm not saying that you'll have a bunch of friends. Telling the truth limits friendships. It does. We'll be hated. And that's fine. Proverbs 18.24 A man of too many friends comes to ruin. I don't want too many friends anyway. You have too many friends, you come to ruin. But you should be a servant to people who aren't even your friends. And have compassion to people who hate you. To do good to those who despitefully use you in person. It sounds like I'm quoting Jesus or something here, doesn't it? That we love those who even hate us. It's not about friendship. It's not about, I've got, I'm going to do good toward him so he'll be my friend. That way when I have a need later, he'll come back and fill it. He'll never do it. We love anyway. And we serve. We do good to those who will do or can do nothing good back for us. Jesus didn't have too many friends during his earthly ministry. But you can rest assured that he didn't get bored and he sure didn't get lonely. He didn't have time. Everybody wasn't coming around him because they enjoyed his company so much, but what they could get out of him. Yo, you just want to use me for what you can get out of me. People will do that and we will be willing to be used. Because we love. And it's not about us and what we can get out of the mutually beneficial relationship. We love people who won't love us back. If you're bored and lonely, see a need and feel the need. And you'll get a reputation for ministry and more people will want to be around you and you won't have time to be lonely and feel neglected. You'll get rid of the violin. Say, my heart bleeds for you. You get rid of it. You break it and throw it away. This statement, it's time to get to work, is almost always true. God enshrined that truth in the created order itself. Remember Exodus 20, 11, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and He rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh, and He made it holy. Sure, the day of rest is a blessed day, but we must never forget that God created... He created six days for work and only one Sabbath. He did not create six Sabbaths and only one day for work. Even Jesus teaches us that holy men will find themselves busy working even on the Sabbath. Just not for their own increase or provision. Remember in John 5, 16-17, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. But He answered and said to them, My Father is working even until now, and I myself am working. He would still do works of compassion toward others even on the Sabbath. Just not for His own benefit, His own gain. He did those things as an act of worship to God. He was still working, looking to serve, even or especially on the Sabbath. It's the Pharisees who wanted to make certain that everyone legalistically rested. It was Jesus who made sure that everyone was compassionately served. I want to be like Jesus, don't y'all? That's the better example for us, isn't it? Question. How does one know if it's time to get to work? Answer, because there's work to be done. That's how you know. If there's work to be done, then it's time to get to work. And there is always someone to serve. 
There's always someone to encourage. There's always someone to love. There's always something productive to do with your brief little life. And remember this, that's all it is. It's so brief. And everything we do leads to eternal reward in the path of obedience to Christ. Don't squander this little life you've got. Be a person filled with compassion that develops this reputation of ministry. John 9, 1-5, as he passed by, Jesus here, he saw a blind man who was blind from birth. And his disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned that this man, his, this man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was neither this man that sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day, because night is coming when no man can work. There's work to be done. We still have time. We still have breath in our lungs. We must work while there's still time. Breaks are addictive and they're often unhelpful. I want you to remember that. Man, if I could just rest a little, I'll be ready for work. Many times we break and we want more break. And we want more break. And we get lethargic. And we get weak. And we get weaker. And we care less. It's funny to me that the most depressed people I ever find are usually the least productive people I ever find. You ever, you ever notice that? And that the thing they need is the thing they don't feel like doing. Satan says, oh, just lay down and quit. Wait till you feel like it. If you wait till you feel like it, you'll never get up and you'll never feel better. But if you push through and say, I'm going to be obedient when I don't feel like it, the feelings will come later. And you'll develop this reputation for service. We should always be willing and ready to resume the work of the ministry. And when that's our posture, we'll get a reputation for ministry. And that will lead to our third R, the reverberation of ministry. Look at 35 through 36. They sent word into all the, the surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. Notice this. Jesus having a compassionate heart that forsook rest to fill needs and that ignored personal rejection to fill needs led to Jesus having a reputation of ministry and the reputation of ministry read, led to a reverberation of ministry. What's a reverberation? Well, it's an R word. It's the main reason I chose it. But it means the ongoing effect of a past event. Usually like a sound, like an echo. Something that happened and then it has repercussions after. It happened, but the effects are still bouncing around, leading to more effects. And look at how Jesus' life of ministry led to more ministry. Summary, you look at the summary ministry statement in Matthew 4, 23-24. We're running all the way through Matthew over and over again. It's kind of how I prepare sermons. So anyway, if you want to go back and follow me here. Matthew 4, 23-24. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him spread throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all who were ill. You see it? He's, doing, he's healing everybody. Just serving and serving, seeing needs, filling needs. News about it spreads and they bring more people to him so he can heal more people. That ministry leads to a reputation of ministry that leads to people hearing about it and bringing you more ministry to do. Boom, 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 boom. You don't have time to get bored. You sure ain't got time to get lonely. You don't have time to get your little violin out and say, my heart bleeds for me. 
You don't get to feel sorry for yourself because you're too busy healing and seeing and feeling the needs of other suffering people. It takes your eyes off yourself and onto others and you praise God for the time of His visitation in you through the Holy Spirit to be the healing agent for others. And it brings you a life of joy. The response to his teaching is the same, Matthew 7, 28 through 8, 1. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, and large crowds followed him. Detailed healings, you have the leper, the centurion, paralyzed servant, uh, Peter's mother-in-law's fever healed all in chapter 8, healed a paralytic, a woman with an issue of blood, raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, and the demon-possessed mute all in chapter 9. And then another summary statement in 935, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and all the sickness. You see a thing? More detailed healings. Man with a withered hand. And then in 12.15 when Jesus was aware they were going to destroy him, many though followed him and he healed them all. You have this kind of life and it leads to this kind of life. The more you serve, the more service there is to be done. Another response to his teaching, large crowds gathered to him and he spoke many things to them in parables, Matthew 13, 2-3. And then another summary healing statement, 14, 14. He went ashore, he saw large crowds, he felt compassion for them and he healed their sick. The more good Jesus did, the more word got around and the more good he had the opportunity to do. The fact that the word got around is even clear in our text here, isn't it? Look at verse 36 again back in our primary text. They implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. Now, where might have they gotten that idea from? Well, Gennesaret is only three miles southwest of Capernaum. And Jesus was in Capernaum in Matthew 9, 23 through 22, when a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. And she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I'll get well. And lo and behold, it worked. And Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. If you're a blessing to others, then word will get around and people will want to be around you because they want to be blessed by your ministry. But if you're a drain on others, you'll find yourself alone. What's wrong with all these people that don't want to be around me? What's wrong with you that nobody wants to be around you? Why is it always everybody else's fault? You ever think that maybe it's not everybody else that's wrong, but that you're just not that pleasant? That there's no benefit people derive from being around you? That maybe you need to look in the mirror and repent of the fact that you're not a blessing to others because you're not walking in the Spirit of God? Don't be offended when you find yourself feeling neglected, bored, or lonely. Take a look in the mirror. Repent and pray that God fills you with the gifts of the Spirit so that you might be a blessing to others. Activity breeds activity. The more good you do, the more people want to be around you so you can do good for them. You give good counsel, people hear the good counsel and then they want to come to you so that they can get, guess what? Good counsel. You give bad counsel, people hear of the bad counsel. Do you think the other people are going to hear about it and want to come and get your bad counsel? Nope. So you've got to be in the Word. You've got to be compassionate. You've got to know how to deal with people. You've got to love them well. You've got to feel their needs. You've got to see their needs and love them. When you are a blessing, God will give you more opportunity to bless others. Reminds me of Matthew 25, 23. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will make you ruler over 
Many. You know what you give a man that's good at digging holes? A bigger shovel. That's what you do. They're good at big, they're good at digging holes. You know what that guy needs? A bigger shovel. You know what God does when you're doing good and you're growing in the Lord? He'll increase your opportunity to serve. He'll give you a bigger shovel. God help me be a blessing that I might be a blessing to more and more people. I don't quote John Wesley very much, but I like this quote. He says, Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. To that I say, Amen. Our last R, we've had a resumption of ministry that leads to a reputation of ministry that leads to the reverberation of ministry but now that ministry what kind will it be it will be a ministry of restoration and they implored him verse 36 that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak and what happened as many as were touched it were cured you ever heard people say I'm not uh, I'm not perfect I'm just forgiven or I you know I'm not perfect that's true but you're not just forgiven either You should be being conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. There's transformation that's taking place. There's healing that's taking place. There's a restoration of the image of God taking place in you. And we should be agents that are bringing that about in the lives of others. That's what discipleship is. Ain't none of us able to heal people by them touching our clothes. Anybody here that can do that? Because if so, I I need to take you to the hospital with me. We We need to go compassionately make a visit, don't we? None of us can do that. But Jesus' ministry of immediate miraculous healing proved the arrival of the kingdom in the person of Christ. And that kingdom is here. It's here now. His healing showed that His teachings of the law were true and that He had come to overcome the curse of Adam and to usher in the kingdom of God on earth. As we make disciples of the nations, the curse is being increasingly rolled back. We're seeing progress as, as we you look at the expansion of the gospel throughout. Look at the worlds where it's taken root. Look at the nations where it's taken root. The blessings that those nations have became not only to themselves, but to other nations around them. Why? Because that Christian worldview. It brings healing, longer lives, happier marriages. It brings healing. It overcomes the curse. Through what? Through just walking in God's law. Well, the law don't save us. No, it don't. We're saved by the grace through faith in Christ Jesus alone. That's how we get justified. That's how we go to heaven. But once we're saved, we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit and we start being sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ. And with that comes not the covenantal curses, but the covenantal blessings that come on God's people. And it overcomes the cursed ways that we lived before and the consequences of those curses in this age. And that matters. We've neglected that for far too long. We have a little bitty truncated gospel when we need a fully orbed one, one that leads to restoration of the image of God and the people who are allegedly or truly redeemed. Jesus' immediate healings proved His identity and now we obey Him and we make disciples which causes the gradual expansion of the kingdom of God on earth through the preaching of the gospel and the gifts of the Spirit working in us. We're not called to bring instant healing like Jesus. None of us have that power. But we are to be ministers of reconciliation who bring restoration to the lives of those that we serve and disciple. We must recognize the biblical principle of gradualism. God generally works out His will gradualistically. 
rather than immediately and all at once. Jesus' miraculous and instantaneous healings were an exception to God's normal mode of operation. They are not to be the expectation of His disciples. We see this in Israel's incremental conquest of the Promised Land, don't we? We see it in God's unfolding of His revelation in history, in the progress of redemption in space and time that it happened over thousands of years, in the expansion of Christ's kingdom to the end of the earth. Here at Advent season, we quote it regularly, don't we? Isaiah 9, 6-7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Father of Eternity, the Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Is he going to do it all at once? It's not what it says, is it? He'll start it, and there will be no end to that increase that will take place gradually over time. It'll be like the mustard seed until it gets so big that all the birds of the air rest in its branches. And like the, the, the leaven that's hidden in the lump, the, the huge lump of dough, until the whole thing is transformed gradually. You're part of that. You're part of that change taking place, Christian, in this world, bringing restoration to all things. That's who we are to be. Our results are not immediate like His, but our manner is to be. What do I mean by that? Jesus didn't spend His earthly ministry hanging out with all the cool kids. You know that? He didn't spend His time with the most interesting people or the most intelligent people or the people who were the most fun to be around or even the most holy people. That's not who He was and that's not who we're called to be either. We, we, have, we, we can become a little bit elitist and become more like the Pharisees than we are like Jesus if we're not really, really careful. Amen. Romans 12, 16. It tells us to be of the same mind toward one another, not to be haughty in mind, but to associate with the lowly. To look for people who have needs, who aren't all, you know, they don't cut the mustard like you might want them to. They're not all that you might think they should be. And that's exactly why you need to be around them. They're not as sanctified as you. But you go to them and you love them from where they are to where God would have them to be, that you be that minister of reconciliation, that minister of restoration in their lives. People that you disagree with about things. It's so easy to huddle together with people that we have all kinds of agreement with when God calls us to go to people we disagree with and make disciples of them. Teaching them, not people who already observe all things that Jesus said, but people who don't and you go to them and you teach them to observe all things that He said. We can't heal that that doesn't need healing. We can't restore that which doesn't need restoration. Jesus had two criteria for his time. That there was a need and that he was called by God to fill it. I love that about Jesus and I want to be like Jesus in this way. It reminds me of Matthew 9, 10 through 13. Turn back there. It's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I want to look at this one more time. Back to the story of Jesus with the tax collectors and the sinners. Matthew 9, 10-13. It says, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus 
and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and the sinners? That word for sinners here it means notorious sinners, people who thumb their nose at God's law. But when Jesus heard this, he said, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And go and learn what this means. I desire compassion. Hmm, that word's right there in our text, right before this narrative, isn't it? That's what led to this exhausting thread of ministry. He's exhausted. He goes to a secluded place. He wants to rest, but he sees people who have need when he gets there, and they're all coming to him, and he heals them all into the night, into the evening when they're hungry. And then they're hungry, and the disciples want to send them away, but he has compassion, so he feeds them all. And then he sends the disciples away on a boat, and they're already tired, and they fight a storm all the way to the middle of the night, and they land at Gennesaret, obviously wanting some rest and relaxation. But then when they get there, they're recognized, and they bring people to them. And he still has compassion. Because God desires compassion, not sacrifice. All your sacrifices. Oh, I carve out time and I redo my morning Bible study every day. I have my quiet time. I even take a picture and post it on Facebook so the world can see it. I come to church. I sing my hymns. I do my Christmas songs. I even do, I do all these things, all these wonderful things. Are you a compassionate person? Do you see the needs of others and you can't help it because you overflow with the love of God and you feel the needs? That's what God desires. That's who Jesus was. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The fullness of the law requires that we seek restoration, that we see these needs. Notice this in verse 12. It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. We mustn't miss what Jesus is saying. The scribes and Pharisees had an external form of godliness. They did all the prescribed external things that the law required. Sacrifices, tithes, feasts, fasts, Sabbaths of observance. They were strict, austere, and ritualistic in their formal obedience. But the kingdom of God requires more than these externals. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't even see the kingdom of heaven. Those who inherit the kingdom of God are marked by an internal righteousness. Notice the outward, uh, the outward focus of verse 12. It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. The law requires that we care about the needs of others. Isn't that what the second table of the law is all about? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus emphasized a righteousness that's heart deep. Two of the Beatitudes jump off the page at us. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. That we see people hurting people and we care about their lives, the deaths, the suffering we see around us and the suffering to come at the last judgment. And blessed are the peacemakers in 5.9. That word peacemakers, I want to bear down on that. We're almost done. Shalom. Think of the shalom of God. Not of the lack of conflict, but of the shalom of God. Helping people whose lives are disordered, who are not living in the tranquility of the shalom of God because they've turned away from His law. They're receiving covenantal curses instead of covenantal blessings. The children of the kingdom desire to help. You ever heard somebody say, well, everything happens for a reason? Well, yeah, sometimes the reason is that you did stupid stuff. And you got people around that don't know God's law and they're doing stupid stuff forever. 
Well, I got lung cancer. It's just everything happens for a reason. Yeah, you smoke three packs a day like an idiot. I did it. You got cirrhosis of the liver. Man, everything happens for a reason. Yeah, you drank like a sod. Man, my marriage fell apart. Yeah, you ignored your wife. You didn't disciple her. You didn't lead her well. Everything happens for a reason. Instead of building hospitals at the bottom of cliffs after people have fallen off, what if we built fences at the top and warned them to say, Hey, don't go over. Don't do that. It'll lead to ruin. That's bringing in the shalom of God in people's lives. Discipling people. Bringing restoration to what's headed toward ruin and is already in some sort of state of ruin and rot. Jesus has been healing all sorts of sick people. And we must alleviate suffering in ways that are within our power. But the greatest sickness is sin. These people have no apparent physical illness that Jesus is with here. But Jesus still calls them sick, doesn't he? The sin-sick soul is the worst kind of sick. Because of your sin, you will one day get old, you'll get sick, and you'll die. And after that, you'll stand before God to be judged. And as a sinner, your greatest need will be forgiveness. If only the doctor that could provide... If there was just a doctor that could provide that. Jesus has already proven that, hasn't he? In this story right before it. The analogy is simple. Jesus, as the physician, is expected to go among people who are sick. A forgiver should be expected to be among those who are sinful. Look at Jesus giving hope to those who are sin-sick in 9, 2 through 6. You're already in chapter 9. Look back at 2 through 6. They brought him a paralytic laying on the bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. All this healing of sickness, it was to show His power to heal the actual real sickness, the sin sickness, that we need forgiveness and cleansing from our sins. You say, I can't heal sickness. You can heal the greatest sickness because you've got the healing agent, which is the blood of Christ Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. And you go with that message that we've got a great physician. We take two people... He implored the Pharisees, you're like doctors who diagnose but have no desire to cure. You'll tell a person what his disease is but refuse to give him the medicine for it. What an indictment of their self-righteousness and their hard-heartedness. Those who they diagnosed as sinful, they were quite willing to let them remain sinful. But Jesus did not avoid the sin-sick soul. He especially reaches out to them. Why? Because there is restoration. And God forbid we shun the tax collectors and sinners of our day. That somebody comes in here and, man, they just don't look like us. They might not even be family integrated, some of them. You know what? They might not even be reformed. They might not know what reformed means. They might have extremely disordered lives. And what do we do? Well, we hardly talk to them and we go talk to the people that are more like us. No, compassion says we go to them. We seek them out. We make them a priority. Why? They have more need than the person that's already like you are. And you get a reputation of ministry that leads to a reverberation of ministry. And churches that are wired like that explode because they're functioning in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And they're bringing restoration to people who need it. I want to point out one more thing back in our primary text. There's no indication that these people here repented. 
We know for certain that the people who he healed prior to the feeding of the 5,000 didn't because at the end of the day, they all left him because they rejected his teachings despite the miraculous healings. Remember, they, they said, this saying is hard, and they all left him, and it was just Jesus and his disciples alone. But we have to take note, he still had compassion on them. He didn't reverse the healings. And he didn't make them all sick, so they vomited up all the loaves and fishes that he fed them either. Do you know you can be compassionate to people who don't repent, that you still should care for people, that there should still be an ache in your heart? If you're healthy in your spiritual life, you still care. They don't become like little gnats in your estimation. But you still love people and still want to help in whatever ways that you actually can. Compassion compelled Jesus to still serve. MacArthur says this, Because they did not ask for a full meal, he did not refuse to give them a piece of bread. Because they didn't ask for spiritual help, he did not refuse them physical help. In spite of their superficial, superficiality, their ingratitude, and their self-centeredness, he mercifully healed those in order to reveal the compassionate heart of God. If we have compassion only for those in our church, or for those whom we deem to be trying, or for those who we think to be, he's a pretty good old guy then we have something off within our hearts. Galatians 6.10 While we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith, if we have to choose, but to all people. Because the compassionate heart of God compels us. Sometimes God uses the compassion we show to others as a tool to open their hearts to the message we proclaim. Sometimes He doesn't, sometimes He does. So pray that God gives you a heart of compassion for the hurting you see around you. Pray that your eyes are open to the needs and the ways that you can fill them. Pray that your compassion causes you to forget how tired you are or how hurt you've been. That you'll gain this reputation of ministry that leads to more and more opportunities to love and serve others. And proclaim the good news of the gospel to them and that through that message, we see sinners trust savingly in Christ and repent of their sins. And as they're discipled, that we see the image of God restored in them, leading to well-ordered lives that live in that same compassionate way and that they too become a blessing to others. And in that way, the kingdom of God gradually spreads and that curse is gradualistically rolled back through the simple service of the gifts of the Spirit in His church. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, God, we pray that you would give us these sorts of hearts. We thank you for that example that you gave. Lord, that your example is a sinless example. We will never attain to that. We will come up short of that perfect example. We have, we do, and we know we always will. But that because you are the perfect example of that, that you terminated that example, that you, you, you fulfilled it, that it came to its fullness in your sacrificial death on the cross, seeing our great need, knowing that was the only way to redeem us, and that you laid down your life and died for unworthy sinners like us. Lord, increasingly conform us to that image, work in and through us, and help us to reach a lost and dying world with the hope of the gospel. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray, and amen.